0: Hey, what's going on? Ray Woodson here, back with episode 8 of Triples Alley Report. And my guest this week will be me. How'd I do it? Great booking. thought it'd be a good week to go a cappella because we have a lot to get into. We expect the search for a general manager for the Giants to accelerate now that the season is over. We'll get into that. We'll get into a little baseball history. But you, know, you can still smell the champagne in the visiting clubhouse at Dodger Stadium. So let's break down the World Series a little bit. The 2018 season ended with... Manny Machado falling to his knees, striking out against Chris Sale. It was, as they say on Twitter, chef kisses fingers. Couldn't happen to a better guy. More about Manny coming up. Also, the Dodgers watched a World Series champion celebrate on their field for the second year in a row. If you're a Giants fan, that is also "Le Chef kissing fingers. I'm old enough to remember when the Dodgers were winning championships and the Red Sox had a historic drought. Well, that drought for the Dodgers is now 30 years. Twelve times since that 1988 title, they've come up empty in the postseason, and that 88 team might have been one of the worst to win a World Series. They have lost more World Series than any franchise in Major League history. Fourteen, they broke a tie with the Yankees, who've won a few more. The Dodgers are very good, but very inconsistent. Uh, With the bullpen, they were inconsistent. With hitting in clutch situations, very inconsistent. But the Red Sox were just too solid. Uh, they're being spoken of as one of the greatest teams of all time. And that's what pundits like to do. They like to make grand pronunciations based on small sample sizes, hoping it'll come true. I don't know if that's true or not. Usually that's measured by multiple championships. It is fair to say this. The 2018 Red Sox had one of the greatest baseball seasons ever. They were dominant almost like the Warriors, and that's not easy to do in baseball. Is that going too far? Well, they won 108 games. The Yankees won 100 but they didn't really sniff the Red Sox in the AL East after midseason. The Red Sox had a run differential of 229 to the good behind only the Astros. The Red Sox took down the Yankees and the ALDS in four, the Astros and the ALCS in five, and the Dodgers, who had played 630 ball over the final two-thirds of the season, were vanquished in five. Three teams that won a total of 303 games. And yeah, I know there's some delusion because some teams were tanking, but 303 games won by three teams, and the Red Sox went 11-3 against them. I thought the Red Sox would beat the Dodgers in six. Guess I sold them short. Sorry, Bill James. The Dodgers needed 18 innings and a Max Muncy walk-off to get the one win. A lot of people thought that game might trash the Red Sox pitching staff, myself included. Eduardo Rodriguez was going pretty well until he gave up a three-run homer to Yasiel Puig, slamming down his glove as Puig raised his arms and dropped his bat. Turns out that was pretty much the Dodgers' last hurrah because... Mitch Moreland then hit maybe the biggest home run of the season for the Red Sox in the seventh, a three-run shot that gave the Sox uh, some life, got him off the mat. It was more than just Chris Sale yelling in the dugout. They actually did something about it. He homered, got a cookie off of Ryan Madsen, who's been rough in the postseason. And that makes you question Dave Roberts for pulling Rich Hill, who was at 91 pitches, was going pretty well, up by four runs, then walked Xander Bogarts, but struck out Eduardo Nunez. Everybody's second-guessing him, including Donald Trump. Oh, sit down. It makes me want to defend Dave Roberts, but he did have a puzzling pattern of bullpen use. Scott Alexander then walked Brock Holt, whose insertion for Ian Kinsler also helped the Red Sox rebound. Then Madsen got Jackie Bradley Jr. to pop out before Moreland hit a 437-foot home run to right. The Dodgers' bullpen let them down time and again in this postseason, an area where they thought that they might have an edge. I thought they would but the edge was Boston's, even after that fire drill in Game 3, a seven-hour marathon. Game 4, Steve Pierce, after the Moreland hit home, hit a home run, hit a game-tying shot in the 8th and three-run double in the ninth to break it open, and the Dodgers and their home crowd were stunned. Sox up three games to one, and you could argue it ended right there. And Pierce put the cherry on top with two home runs in Game 5, a journeyman player who got hot at the right time, capping off a victory and another season that ended in frustration for Clayton Kershaw. We'll have more about him shortly. Uh, Pierce was named MVP of the World Series. David Price was just as worthy. His numbers since the ALCS clincher, 24 and two-thirds innings, 10 hits, three runs. While Kershaw cannot quite shake the postseason albatross, Price sent it packing. After that crushing 18 inning loss Saturday morning, Alex Cora said, hey, you're going to be coming up. Surprise, Price. They thought Chris Sale was going for game five. But the instincts were right. And sometimes you have to have instincts. You have to read people as well as process information as a manager. And a guy who's been in the game like Alex Cora, who established himself in that clubhouse right away by visiting every player in the offseason, he did a fantastic job. And David Price went into the eighth, gave up a David Fries home run, five hits, five strikeouts. He reversed the narrative within this postseason. And this is where the game within the game within the game came into play. It turns out Price may have been tipping his changeup. According to Jeff Passett of Yahoo Sports, the first base coach could see the grip and signal the hitter. That's a big problem because Price was already using his cut fastball less and the Yankees hit him hard. The Astros did the same in Game 2 of the ALCS. Then the Red Sox adjusted, almost no cut fastballs, and they avoided the tip-off for the changeup, which was used more and more. And that worked well, and the clinching Game 5 of the ALCS against the Astros worked splendidly in the World Series. For those who thought Price had tired in the postseason, the weight of the postseason reputation was too much, well, he blew all that out of the water. The Red Sox also prepared their starters for October all season long so that they would be relatively fresh. They watched their pitch count like a hawk. And I get it, you know, sometimes it seems silly within an individual game, but over the course of a season, especially when you have so much money invested in players and Price is one of those players, it's smart. Only three times in September... Did Red Sox starters go over 100 pitches? They had to make an adjustment for Craig Kimbrell, too, and he was much more solid out of the bullpen by the time the World Series came around. That's another way they changed the edge. Turns out he was tipping a curve that acts like a knuckle curve, and runners at second could see the knuckle grip and signal the hitter. The Red Sox would have Kimbrell show the knuckle grip on a fastball to make an adjustment, making the runner think a knuckle curve was coming, and then Kimbrell would adjust the grip in his windup. That's not easy to do. Uh, Jeff Passan rightfully pointed out that those adjustments for Price and Kimbrell were huge. The Red Sox are talented, so talented they might have been able to overcome those troubles, but it would have been a lot more difficult. And then there is Pierce. A lot of Giants fans liken him to Cody Ross, a late season acquisition who came up big in the postseason, both bald. Ross was NLCS MVP in 2010, Pierce the World Series MVP this year. The Blue Jays paid down his salary so that the Red Sox only owed $1.5 million for the rest of the season when they acquired him. And they gave up a double-A second baseman named Santiago Espinal. Massive trade. In that way, it was as much of a win for the Red Sox as the Giants acquiring Marco Scudero for Charlie Culberson in 2012 from Colorado. Of course, Culberson has gone on to have a major league career, but that year it was massive. Pricer Pierce justifiable for MVP. Uh, Some of my Twitter followers suggested Clayton Kershaw because, well, they're Giants fans. Uh, Kershaw finished the season as he has ended so many. In fact, eight postseason failures for him in 11 seasons. He gave up three home runs in game five and now must contemplate his future. Now, right after the game, he said he didn't know what he would do, whether he'd pick up the player option for the final two years of his contract. And really, don't read too much into that. I mean, the champagne was still flowing in the other clubhouse. Emotions were still raw. As with Madison Bumgarner, there are signs of decline this season, which was interrupted by injury. But like Bumgarner, he's still pretty good. Uh, Kershaw's one of the all-time greats, the heart of the Dodgers. But unlike Bumgarner, he has not lived up to his standards in the postseason. While Bumgarner has set records, Kershaw has the worst ERA when his team faces elimination in the game's history. Minimum four starts, 6.06 ERA. He's got good company. Pedro Martinez, Max Scherzer, Brett Saberhagen, Roger Clemens, all over a five ERA. Kershaw's due $70 million over the next two seasons. As good as he is, I don't think he is getting that anywhere else. If he opts out, he won't get that from the Dodgers either, I don't think. Even though they shed nearly $50 million from their payroll before this season, possibly a way to prep for a Kershaw extension. They apparently stayed under the tax threshold and were able to reset the penalty table. As valuable as Kershaw is, the Dodgers also have to find new starters at second base and at catchers, so they got money to spend elsewhere. And they may have answers within their system, and they might decide to re-up Kershaw at some point. Another name to watch in the offseason, in the free agent market, Nathan Ivaldi, who was incredible in his last few postseason appearances. No more so than in Game 3, even though he gave up the walk-off, he saved the Sox bullpen by going six innings before the Muncie walk-off. Just about every one of his teammates slapped him on the back or the head when it was done. I tweeted out a couple of innings prior that even if Ivaldi yielded a walk-off, no Sox fan should be angry. He went way farther than anyone anticipated, and Giants fans remembered Yusmero Petit in Washington in 2014, except a different ending. Ivaldi went 97 pitches, the most ever for a reliever in a postseason game. Rick Porcello called it the most incredible pitching performance he's ever seen. Well, Mad Bum says, hey... Anyway, these, role will never be forgotten in Boston. But like Eduardo Nunez, I, I worry he might be down a limb when this was all done. And he's had two Tommy John surgeries, the latest in 2016. And here he was going all Rob Nen and then some. You hope he didn't give up his right arm for the team because he stands to go powerball this offseason with the new contract. He had a 3.45 ERA in 133 innings, 1.61 ERA in 22 playoff innings. The only run was Muncie's walk-off. He can touch 101 in his four-seam fastball with an average of 97. The slugging percentage against that pitch dropped from 446 in 2016 to 309 this year. But as good as that pitch was, he only threw it 40% of the time. He'd mix it up with cutters, with curves, with splitters, with sliders. His cutter had just about the best velocity in the majors. And remember when we said there are very few free agent starters under 30? Well, say hello to Nathan Avaldi. Those two Tommy John surgeries are in the back of everyone's mind, and his strikeout rate wasn't lights out, 7.9 per nine innings this season. Given recent trends in baseball, I'd expect a short-term deal with high average annual value for Rivaldi and maybe a player option. Should the Giants look at him? Sure. He's got a load of talent, and he is still relatively young, but they'll probably circle Patrick Corbin first after they figure out what to do with Bumgarner, Uh, But I think Evaldi should be in the mix. Then again, that depends on the new general manager. So what you have to do is wait for the dominoes to fall. And by the way, the Athletics announced they are going to give extensions to Billy Bean, David Forrest, and manager Bob Melvin. Cross those guys off your list if they were ever on it. But there's another guy, assistant GM Billy Owens, who certainly knows how to evaluate talent. You could say that about Chaim Bloom and Amiel Sade and Jason McLeod of the Cubs. He brings a pretty decent resume to the table, as does Kim Ng. Again, the Giants appear to have some pretty good choices. And although he said the GM search could accelerate now that the season is over, it also means the Giants could spend a little more time adding candidates, including those who have worked with the Red Sox and Dodgers. So a couple more weeks is my guess, educated guess, but that's all it is. The Giants have announced they have exercised the options for Madison Bumgarner and Pablo Sandoval. Neither a surprise, and Sandoval proved to be a decent bench piece for the Giants before undergoing surgery. Also, Sandoval, Buster Posey, Jeff Samarja, and Johnny Cueto, among those activated from the 60-day disabled list. There are still four spots on the Giants' 40-man roster. Giants also announced that Melvin Adon, who throws a fastball, that top's 100, plus a slider, has been named to the Arizona Fall League Fall Starts game. He struck out 15 in eight innings, allowing a grand total of three base runners, no walks. He's 24 and not listed among the Cal League top prospects after an unimpressive stint in San Jose. But he clearly has some tools could be a late bloomer. So those are some of the minor moves that have been made. Some of them pretty much expected. Everybody's waiting for the big moves the Giants might make in the offseason. And again, you got to start by hiring the GM. And again, the dominoes falling. It usually starts with the signing of a big star, such as Bryce Harper, such as Patrick Corbin. But what about Manny Machado? Well, for the Dodgers, he's not going to come back in shortstop because Corey Sager will return. They also have Walker Bueller poised to be a star, Julio Rios on the rise, Do they look elsewhere to spend money? It's popular to say Machado has cost himself dough with his postseason annex, which included, within the last week, pimping a single and running onto the foot of another first baseman after blowing a bubble while running less than 100% to first base. It's a pattern of chicken bleep. And he's a dirty player, but also a very talented one. He'll get good money. I don't think he'll cost himself a bunch, but he didn't help his case. And he may have turned off a few teams. And if I'm the Dodgers, I I move on. But he's still got one of the uh, best uh, talent uh, toolboxes available. And even with the antics, he does enough over 162 games. Makes you think that uh, if he gets you to the postseason, you take your chances. At least somebody will say that, and somebody will pay. He got to the World Series, so it's hard to say he's not a winning player. But here's where the talent tolerance scale again comes into play. And I think where the Giants are concerned, that's going to work against Machado. Then there's Eduardo Nunez, who nearly lost a limb or two in the 18-inning Game 3, but also hit a big three-run homer in the series. He didn't have a very good season, but left with some good memories. And all extremities intact, I'm happy to report, plus a thank you from Giants fans. He plans to pick up his $5 million option and stay with the Boston Red Sox, and I don't blame him. Dave Roberts is beloved in Boston, and maybe even more so now as well as in San Francisco, where he also played. He'll be 2nd guest all winter, but I think no matter what he did, the Red Sox were better. Are the Dodgers really not going to pick up his option for next year? He's done a pretty good job during the regular season as a manager, but uh, definite warts here in the postseason. The Dodgers aren't going anywhere, whether Dave Roberts is their manager or not. And the Red Sox aren't going anywhere. And this is what faces the new GM of the Giants, here the Dodgers have won six division titles in a row. And they're going to be favored again next year. I mean, Giants fans can laugh at their World Series failure, but they've gotten there in back-to-back seasons. And the Cubs are still looming. The Braves are on the come-up with young talent. And the Astros, Athletics, Yankees, Indians, and Red Sox already strong. So it's tough. But it also demonstrates that a smart GM who can develop young talent in the farm system, not only for the big club, but through trade pieces, and who can understand scouting and personnel, and how they work together, can turn around a team in a couple of years. And the Red Sox hired an excellent manager in Alex Cora, who uh, fit into that clubhouse beautifully in his first season and knows people. As we said before, you've got to do that. You've got to have an idea of how to read the room as long as human beings are going to play this game. And yeah, there are always trends in baseball. Right now it's about launch angle, aggressive approach for hitters, high strikeout rates for pitchers. The bottom line is, No matter what kind of game you play, get good players. I've said this about the Warriors before. Teams talking about going small because the Warriors did, but they don't have the Warriors' talent. Much is made of the Red Sox' high contact rate and high walk rate, as well as their two-strike approach. I mean, they're, they're the best in baseball in those categories. But they also hit 208 home runs, I might remind you. And they had a deep bench as well as strong starting pitching, plus terrific defense. And they both fit their ballpark and their division. A very, very well-rounded team. The Giants, well, again, in this postseason, demonstrated the gaping maw in talent between the top teams and the Giants. The Giants won't hit 200 home runs anytime soon, but I'd like to see them hit more than 130 or so. If they're not going to hit more than that, they'd better do a lot of other things well. All they did last year that was even noteworthy was pitching from June 1st to September, but that's about it because they could not hit. As we get into the offseason, we will start getting into free agency. I was almost going to say do a deep dive, but that might be the most tired phrase of the year. Well, one of them. Also tired? Saying something is tired AF. The postseason did not give me all the feels. I text my friends and loved ones, but I'm no textrovert. I like the word salty, though. That's an all-timer, in my opinion. I-M-H-O. If you're a stan, well, that's not a good thing. Opposite of low-key, I would say. And please... Let's retire witch hunt, at least after Halloween. Hey, a reminder, we've got some great podcasts in the Blue Wire family here in the Bay Area. Or should I say fam? Well, maybe I shouldn't. But it's a great group, and you can catch them at bluewirepods.com. That includes the Kevin Jones podcast, On the 49ers, and Ted Wynn with Coffeehouse Stunt covering the Raiders. They're doing God's work this year, folks, I'll tell you. If there is a podcasting medal for, for uncommon valor, what would you call it? The Quad du Pod? Well, these guys deserve it. And this week, the showdown. I saw the promo on TV for Thursday Night Football touting Bay Area bragging rights. Exactly what would those bragging rights be, considering one team has the moving van warmed up? I love John Gruden saying, we'll be back. That's what I say every time I drive out of Vegas and leave the bag behind. I guess the bragging rights are who has the inside track for the number one pick. What exactly has gone wrong with these teams, aside from trading away once-in-a-generation defenders or losing your starting quarterback and running back that you just signed to big deals? And how do they get out of this mess? Well, Ted and Kevin break it down. Ted with Coffeehouse Stunt. Kevin with the Kevin Jones Podcast. And we'll see which of them emerges victorious on Thursday. Two pods enter. One emerges. Did I oversell it? Oh, well. Okay, kids, gather around. It's story time with Uncle Ray. Ah, listen to that production value. Let's go back in baseball history a little bit, shall we? Let me turn this down first. Henry was born on the first day of 1911 in Greenwich Village, New York. His family moved to the Bronx when he was a child. Henry starred in both basketball and baseball in school as he grew to a height of six foot four. He turned down the New York Yankees out of high school and attended New York University. It seemed his favorite position was first base, and the Yankees already had a guy named Lou Gehrig. He signed with the Detroit Tigers a year later. He was the youngest player in the majors when he broke in at age 19 with the Tigers in 1930 but only played one game. He was MVP of the Texas League in 1932, back in the majors for good in 1933. Henry soon emerged as one of the top power hitters of his era, and he threatened Babe Ruth's record of 60 home runs in a season, but I'm bearing the lead. He became the first Jewish superstar in American sports, and he was true to his faith. Late in the 1934 season, he announced he would not play on September 10th, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, or on September 19th, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Tiger fans were upset because the Tigers were in the pennant race. They said Rosh Hashanah comes every year, but the Tigers haven't won a pennant since 1909. Henry consulted with his rabbi and agreed to play on Rosh Hashanah, but Yom Kippur, he would still sit out. On Rosh Hashanah 1934, which if my math is correct, was 56.95 on the Jewish calendar, Henry hit two home runs to beat Boston 2-1. Imagine the pride of his Jewish fans when the next day, the Detroit Free Press headline read, Happy New Year in Hebrew lettering. On Yom Kippur, the press wasn't so friendly. He sat out and the Tigers lost to the Yankees 5-2. But Henry said in his autobiography he was still proud of his decision, especially when he received a standing ovation at his synagogue. By now, you probably guessed I'm talking about Hank Greenberg and the life and times of Hank Greenberg, a must-see. A documentary for baseball fans, but even if you're not a baseball fan. It details how important he was to Jewish Americans, especially at a time when Hitler was taking control of Nazi Germany. Here at home, Hank Greenberg faced taunts and insults, the kind of words many Jewish Americans have heard in a country that's supposed to be a guiding light, but so often falls short. How did he handle it? Well, he said the insults only spurred him on to do greater things, and he was one of the all-time greats. Here's a quote. He was one of the truly great hitters, and when I first saw him at bat, he made my eyes pop out. Joe DiMaggio. That's not bad. On October 16, 1940, Hank Greenberg became the first American League player to register for the nation's first peacetime draft. At first he was classified 4F for flat feet and recommended for light duty, but there were rumors that he bribed the board, so Greenberg asked for another examination and he was found fit for military duty this time and reclassified. That meant a cut in salary, $55,000 a year for playing baseball, his military stipend $21 a month. But he said, I made up my mind to go when I was called, my country comes first. He was an anti-tank gunner and was promoted to sergeant, then honorably discharged two days before the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Two days before, December 5th, 1941. He was 28, and Congress would release men 28 and older from service. So, he could have skated back to the major leagues, right? Yeah, but Hank Greenberg re-enlisted on February 1st, 1942. He joined the Army Air Forces, the first major league player to do so. He rose to the rank of captain and served in the China, Burma, India theater. He scouted locations for B-29 bomber bases, and he was a physical training officer. He was also a special services officer of the 20th Bomber Command, the 20th Air Force in China, when it began bombing Japan in 1944. And he remained active for 47 months, more than any other major league player. Hank Greenberg didn't return to baseball until July 1st, 1945, and he homered in his first game back. He led the Tigers to a comfort behind surge to win the American League pennant. He hit a grand slam in the dark at Sportsman's Park in the ninth inning of the final game of the season. The Tigers beat the Cubs to win the World Series, and a series in which Greenberg homered twice. When he got into a salary dispute with the Tigers before the 1947 season, he was traded to the Pirates, co owned by Bing Crosby. And in 1947, Hank Greenberg was one of the few opposing players to publicly welcome Jackie Robinson to the major leagues. Like Ted Williams, who served in two wars, Hank Greenberg lost a lot of career stats due to military service, but he never regretted that. Hank Greenberg was not a nationalist, he was not a globalist, he was a patriot. As are the many Jewish Americans who have helped build this country over the last century in sports and in other fields. And they're more American than a man with guns and a bigoted grudge. The neighborhood in which I grew up included many Jewish families, and Sandy Koufax was their guy. And by the way, Sandy Koufax was there at Dodger Stadium over the weekend for the World Series, looking great at the age of 82. An icon in all of sports, but especially, especially in my neighborhood, where the parents and grandparents of some of my schoolmates escaped the Nazi death camps. The parents of one of my best friends, we're one of those rescued from Hungary by Swedish businessman Raul Wallenberg. In that same neighborhood now, along Pico Boulevard, sits Hillcrest Country Club, started by Jewish residents of Los Angeles, including members of the movie industry, who were not allowed to join non-Jewish country clubs in the area. I had a friend whose dad belonged, and once in a while I'd play tennis with him and eat food off the tab, live and large. One time I saw George Burns, Danny Kaye, and Milton Burl eating lunch together. A bunch of celebrities gathered there for a roast of Sandy Koufax in 1963. And very little of that roast could be repeated in public, but George Jessel called Koufax without question the most important Hebrew athlete since Samson. Hillcrest Country Club sits right across the street from Fox Studios. And just a few blocks to the east sits the Museum of Tolerance. In my opinion, it is a must-visit for anyone who spends time in Los Angeles because the stories must be told, and retold about the Holocaust. So future generations do not forget, because in each generation, people with motives will tell big lies to get what they want, no matter who it hurts. The slogan from the Holocaust is never again. And last weekend in Pittsburgh, it happened. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of Joyce Feinberg, Richard Gottfried, 97-year-old Rose Mallinger, Jerry Rabinowitz, David Rosenthal, Cecil Rosenthal, Sylvan Simon, Bernice Simon, Daniel Stein, Melvin Wax, and Irving Younger. Remember them. Shun the gunman and those who inspired him, and we will drive out this darkness. Thanks for joining me on Triple's Alley Report.